Did President Trump commit the impeachable high crime and misdemeanor of abuse of power based on that evidence and those findings? Based on that evidence and those findings, the president did commit an impeachable abuse of office. Professor Carlin, same question. Same answer. And Professor Gerhardt. We three are unanimous. I'm Ezra Klein, and this is Impeachment Explained. This week, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said she is instructing the House Judiciary Committee to drop articles of impeachment. So we are we are doing this. It is a week that we've moved from the Intelligence Committee to the Judiciary Committee, the week we have moved from the committee that is finding out what Donald Trump did to the committee that is trying to understand, did it count as impeachable? Was it a high crime, treason, a misdemeanor, bribery? This is also the week when we began to see the Republican narratives and Democratic narratives really crystallize into shape. There was the release of the Democratic report from the Intelligence Committee, the Republican report. We saw the law professors uh, testifying before the Judiciary Committee. So I'm joined now by Andrew Prokop to talk about what it all meant. And after that, I want to talk about the impeachment analog that is actually most relevant to this, which is not Nixon, is not Clinton, but is a first impeachment, presidential impeachment in American history, Andrew Johnson. Andrew Brokop, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. We've now had the Democratic report um, from the intelligence hearings, a Republican report from the hearings, the first of the judiciary hearings. And something I was curious, because you fought all this and you fought it all very carefully, what have we learned in all of these hearings, all this investigation since the whistleblower report? Like, what do we know now that we didn't know then? We have learned more information and uh, the story has been filled out. I would actually put the most important trove of evidence as being those text messages that um, we got between Kurt Volker, Gordon Sondland, and um, other Trump officials. You know, that really told the story and the timeline of what happened. It revealed Gordon Sondland's role in all this, like the, the existence of the three amigos and this kind of separate policymaking channel towards Ukraine that was working with Giuliani to advance Trump's political interests. But I do think the broader outlines of the story remain the same. And I think you can see that in uh, Schiff's report, which he just released. You know, the crux of the allegation of misconduct is that the president of the United States attempted to withhold a White House meeting and security assistance from Ukraine to get them to investigate his political rival. And that was in the whistleblower report. Uh, The whistleblower was a little less clear on um, whether the aid was involved. So we have learned some more information suggesting that it was, though there's still a bit of murkiness there on what happened. But um, but yeah, th- this is the story the whistleblower told. It's been corroborated, filled out. Um, we better understand the mechanics of how it happened. But there hasn't been a, you know, game-changing twist since then, I would say. So on that point of Schiff's report, I was reading the Democratic and Republican committee reports here, and it is striking how starkly different they are. So the Democratic report just says, or it says much more than this, it's very long, but it says, the impeachment inquiry has found that President Trump personally and acting through agents within and outside of the U.S. government solicited the interference of a foreign government, Ukraine, to benefit his reelection. And the Republican report says, the Democrats' impeachment inquiry is not the organic outgrowth of serious misconduct. It is an orchestrated campaign to upend our political system, which is all to say that I think that there was some hope some people had that over the course of these hearings, that if it was substantiated that Donald Trump did what he's accused of doing, which I think as much as it could be, it has been, that there would be some real cracks in the Republican coalition on this, that enough people would be willing to come out and say, look, this is bad. You know, we don't support this. Back then, there were, you know, Fox and Friends, there's this great clip of, uh, of them saying, my God, if he actually held back aid, that would just be off the rails wrong. And it just seems none of it really has mattered on the Republican side. People call it alternative realities, but I'm not even sure it's that. It's just a simple denial of the reality. I think this is the latest episode in a 
story we've seen again and again since the rise of Donald Trump, which is that he does something that viewed in the abstract or viewed previously before he did it uh, would have seemed appalling, outrageous to Republicans. Uh, They would have said they would never have been able to justify something like that. And then Trump does it. And then in the ensuing weeks and months, they kind of get used to it. They live with it. Trump's defenders start to come up with arguments for why, well, maybe the evidence isn't so clear here, or maybe what actually happened wasn't so bad, or hey, look, he says he didn't do this part of it, and maybe the evidence says otherwise, but, you know, I'm I'm going to believe the president. And, you know, it, it's I view it not as a process of inquiry, but rather as a a process of rationalization that we've kind of seen play out. This was actually the meta question I had about it. So so looking at the Republican report, it has a bunch of different arguments in it. Some of the arguments are that the evidence is based on hearsay, which at this point it really isn't. Another argument is that there's nothing improper about having a separate Giuliani channel. But then there's a kind of sub-argument to that, that maybe Giuliani was actually rogue, so you can't blame the president for what his separate channel that is actually not improper at all is doing. But then there was a section that is just titled, President Trump has publicly and repeatedly stated that he did not pressure President Zelensky to investigate his political rival. And given that President Trump released a call record that showed him doing exactly that, that was sort of the moment in this report where just like it gave up the game a bit to me in that I feel like you can spend a lot of time chasing down the arguments people make while trying to rationalize something and arguing back and forth about whether or not they're true. But on some level, you're missing the point that if they've decided that they are going to rationalize something, then if you like knock down an argument, four more will simply grow in its place like a hydra. Mm-hmm. And that that seems to be a little bit where we are, that there isn't like this is not something the fact checkers can solve. It's not something that you can disprove. Um, the lines have already been crossed and people just redrew the lines. And so sort of pretending what we're having here is a debate that can be settled by some level of factual evidence is just missing the debate we're actually having here. If you had posed the question to Republicans in July of this year, is it acceptable for a president to urge another country to investigate his political opponent uh, by trying to withhold a meeting and military aid? Um, I think generally they would have said, well, no, that's outrageous. That's not how foreign policy is done. Obviously, if Obama did anything like that, they would have, you know, he would have been impeached like way quicker than this probably. But again, Trump has now done it. And I do think that if if there was some truth serum here, the, the true explanation for what is happening here is that like they view part of their job as to defend Donald Trump. He is the leader of their team, the Republican Party. Their voters continue to overwhelmingly approve of Trump. Uh, the impeachment hearings have not changed that. Uh, his support among the Republican base remains strong. In fact, his overall approval ratings have have been largely unchanged since this scandal broke. Support for impeachment has risen, but it was largely among people who disapproved of Trump already uh, and had previously opposed impeachment. So, you know, if the support among the Republican base for Trump continues to be so strong, then I think the truth serum explanation would be that there are other issues out there. This is just not the most important issue in the world. Uh, They think Trump is doing a good job. He's a good president. He's been, uh, the economy is fine. He's confirming the conservative judges. And like, this is why they want Trump to remain in office. And this is why they're going to look for whatever justification or rationalization they can to argue that this underlying conduct isn't so bad. You you mentioned the speed with which Barack Obama might have been impeached for, for similar acts. But I want to talk about the speed at which this is going for a minute. We've we saw in the judiciary hearings this week that the Republican witness called Jonathan Turley, who's a law professor at George Washington University, um, is somebody who supported the Clinton impeachment, has become a more Republican-aligned person, but says he does not vote for Republicans. He's sort of an, an unusual figure in, in legal politics here in D.C. He came in and he said, I am not arguing that what Donald Trump did wasn't wrong. I'm arguing basically this impeachment process is too fast, that we've not called enough of the witnesses, that it's a railroading. And 
that struck me as a genuinely strange argument because a lot of the witnesses uh, are not being called because Donald Trump will not let them testify. And Democrats don't want to just like let this linger in court until 2027 or whatever it might be. And so I'm, I'm curious how you took that because it was a surprising decision to me for the Republicans to call a witness who his argument wasn't that Donald Trump has not done wrong. His argument is simply that the democratic process is too quick. Given that a lot of Democrats think the democratic process was too quick, what did you make of it? One of the things Turley relied upon to make this point is that in the Nixon and the Clinton impeachment inquiries, there were very lengthy investigations before that. Um, in Nixon's case, we heard of Watergate. The break-ins in summer 1972, the investigations were really into high gear in 1973, and, you know, uh, the actual articles of impeachment were written up in um, 1974. And for Clinton, of course, uh, Ken Starr was investigating all sorts of things for many years uh, before hitting upon the Lewinsky matter and then um, releasing this report. So there has not been a, like, years-long federal law enforcement investigation leading up to this. But what we've had instead is this impeachment inquiry that's been led by Congress that has found a lot. It's it's revealed, I know we just said that it, it hasn't produced like game-changing revelations from what the whistleblower had originally alleged, but what the whistleblower originally alleged was quite bad and damning in and of itself. And what the inquiry did was produce a ton of witness uh, testimony and documentation to corroborate that. The question is, though, whether they could yet find more if they spent more time on this and whether that would be a worthwhile thing. There are obviously several key witnesses who have not testified or refusing to testify. There have been some early indications that the courts might sympathize with Democrats on this. There have been some rulings, uh, a ruling in, in a, a suit over whether Don McGahn, the former White House counsel, had to testify in the impeachment inquiry. And it's still going through the appeals process, but it's possible that the courts would side with Democrats on this. One potential catch, though, is that part of the Democrats' argument is that they are engaged in an impeachment inquiry, one of their major constitutional duties, and that that strengthens their argument that um, these subpoenas and these witnesses are necessary. So if they rush to impeachment, they're, they're sort of losing that leverage to further unearth new facts, documents, and, and witnesses. One striking thing to me about the, the, the argument here is that if you think back to, say, the Nixon impeachment, what the Nixon impeachment ultimately did was it created a process by which the tapes got revealed, right? That is like the super important thing that happened in the course of that. There was John Dean's testimony, and then the the, the White House staff would came and revealed that there was a taping system that was going to give you all this information. Donald Trump released those tapes himself. And I, I think about if in this process what had happened, um, recognizing that no evidence of anything changes anything ever for any reason, but if what had happened is that you'd had the whistleblower report that Congress had launched an inquiry, that the inquiry had forced the release of this transcript that got revealed during the inquiry over the kicking and screaming objections of the Trump White House. And so instead of it being Trump who released it and can say it's a perfect call record, though we can all read it, it had actually come out as something the White House didn't want released, which clearly was true given that it had been stored in the separate classified server. The smoking gun. The smoking gun. If it had come out with more of the theatrics of a revelation, I wonder if that would feel if, if that would make the impeachment inquiry itself feel different to people. It is arguable that you know, as as ridiculous as it seemed when the White House released this highly damning transcript, everyone was like, w "Why would they do this?" Um, but sort of, uh, it did kind of rip the Band-Aid off and get it out there. And now there's been a few months for Republicans to get used to it and uh, come up with uh, defenses for it that would not have really been the case if impeachment, you know, a final vote was close, if this came out as after months of an inquiry, after being withheld, um, would have disproved a lot of Trump's talking points and so on. But my prior is like you said, that the actual evidence here would not have really changed many minds. Like, uh, for instance, one thing that we haven't seen so far is um, a very clear documentation from someone close to Trump that he said at any point, I am ordering this 
aid to Ukraine withheld uh, unless Zelensky does the investigations. Um, there's been a lot of circumstantial evidence suggesting something like that happened, but but we haven't really gotten the proof of it. But then if we did get the proof, how many votes in the House would change? How many votes in the Senate would change? How many uh, – how much would Trump's approval change? Uh, minimal, perhaps? I, I don't know. Andrew Brokop, thank you very much. We naturally think about the impeachments we can more or less remember. Um, many of us were watching politics when Bill Clinton was impeached. Somewhat fewer of us, but still quite a few of us were watching when Richard Nixon was impeached. But in some ways, the character in American history, or at least American presidential history, who is the nearest to Donald Trump, and so the president who was impeached, who is the nearest to Donald Trump, is Andrew Johnson, uh, the president who followed Abraham Lincoln, who was impeached amidst a lot of intemperate outbursts, a lot of racial antagonism on his part. Uh, he was a quite bitter white supremacist. But in, in some ways, more importantly, that was the impeachment in which the generation conducting the impeachment closest to the founding generation had to decide what it was, what it all meant, what this process was for, what actually merited impeachment, what high crimes and misdemeanors meant. And so trying to understand how those structures got put in place, how some of the assumptions we are working off of now happened in the first place, I think is really important. Uh, a couple of years ago, a historian named Brenda Wineapple released a book she'd been working on for years called The Impeachers, which is a phenomenal history of the Andrew Johnson impeachment. And it is a book she was working on before Donald Trump. And then it came out and it has been a very relevant guide to a very important moment in our history. Wineapple joins me after this. Brenda Wineapple, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So let's start with how Andrew Johnson got into a position where he could even be subject to impeachment. How did he become Abraham Lincoln's vice president? Well, um, he was chosen most likely by Abraham Lincoln, although people dispute that. In 1864, Abraham Lincoln actually thought he was going to lose the election. Hard for us to believe today in retrospect, um, but he didn't know that the war was going to turn around in the summer of 64. So he was looking to what we call today balance the ticket. And since Lincoln was a known anti-slavery Republican, he looked to Andrew Johnson, a senator, previously a senator from Tennessee, who was the only person, the only Southerner to stand up in the Senate and oppose secession. He was a, he, Johnson, was a very strong unionist. And as a result, Lincoln put him in Tennessee as the military governor for the occupied part of Tennessee. So, um, Johnson was very well known in the North. He was reviled in the South. He was a Democrat. Lincoln was a Republican. And it seemed a very good bet for helping Lincoln win the election. So that's how it happened. Of course, even though, again, retrospectively, people think, well, Lincoln knew he was going to die or he had premonitions. He really didn't. And a vice president um, was in some sense a figurehead. And he really didn't think that he would have to deal with Johnson very much, that he, Lincoln, was going to reconstruct the country. He didn't realize shortly after the inauguration he'd be dead and Andrew Johnson would be sworn in as the 17th president of the United States. That's how he got there. And so Andrew Johnson is a strong unionist. He believes that the South should never have seceded or in some arguments like did not succeed because it could not secede. In other ways, he had more in common with the political opinions and certainly racial opinions of the Confederate leadership than certainly Lincoln did or many of the people in Lincoln's administration did. Is that fair? Absolutely. It's more than fair. And in fact, Johnson's argument to the South when he stood up in the Senate was, listen, slavery is better protected in the Union rather than outside the Union. And he felt that by seceding and allowing the anti-slavery Republicans um, to take over, that slavery was on its road to extinction. And he wasn't for that at all. So he wasn't put on the ticket because of his racial views or even his political views, except that he was a strong unionist and Lincoln was looking down the barrel, really. So Andrew Johnson becomes president in the aftermath of Lincoln's assassination. What decisions face him 
that begin to rupture his alliance with the coalition that Lincoln had held. Right. Well, what's very interesting is you have to remember, not only did the country endure a terrible civil war, but also the first ever presidential impeachment. And people were really, in Congress, they were really very hopeful about Andrew Johnson, who said, you know, traitors must, must be punished. And he seemed to be talking about the South. But when he took the oath of office in March, Congress was in recess. And actually, Congress um, is supposed to determine the qualifications of its own members. So a few congressional leaders happily went over to Johnson and said, I think you should call a special session. Johnson didn't do it. And then to specifically answer your question, what he starts to do is by executive action, he starts to restore essentially the Southern governments. He starts to pardon almost 100 Confederates, former Confederates, Sessionists, people high up in that government, 100 of them a day. And basically, he says, you can come back into the Union, the South can come back, the 11 seated states, um, if they just renounce secession and they accept the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery. Well, many in the North, that coalition of Republicans, particularly the um, uh, progressives or radicals as they were known, were horrified. And they tried to make amends with Johnson. They tried to say, listen, you can't do this. You shouldn't do this. We get to seat our own members. And Johnson said, as you have just alluded to, Johnson said, a secession never happened because it was illegal. And and that left people, that their heads were spinning. What do you mean it didn't happen? We just fought a war. The other thing that's very important to remember is that four million formerly enslaved people were now free. But because they had been enslaved, they couldn't read or write. They didn't have any means of employment. They technically didn't own the clothes on their back. What was going to happen to them? And Congress wanted to make sure that they had some kind of representation in government. And the Republicans in Congress wanted these four million people to have the rights of citizenship. Johnson was opposed to all of this. And so when Congress started passing legislation without those 11 seceded states seated in Congress, and they started passing things like the civil rights legislation, civil rights bill, Johnson vetoed it. And if you think about it, civil rights legislation is pretty mild stuff. We're not talking about political rights. We're talking about due process. But Johnson was stubborn, and he pushed back at the North and the Republicans, saying this is a white man's country, and by God, it's going to be a white man's government. There were people who were horrified. There is this ripped from the headlines quality to a lot of what Johnson says in speeches and writes and statements in this period. And what struck me so much reading some of it in your book is how similar the arguments are to to some that you hear now, which is basically that any effort to reverse past discrimination, to, to bring people to some rough approximation of equality is seen as a form of current reverse discrimination. Whites are now the discriminated against class. Um, Johnson says this explicitly a, no, a number of times that, well, look, we fought a war um, at some point. We can't turn and discriminate against whites. And it's a it's a, this striking zero hour theory of equality that like, well, starting right now, despite all the inequalities that have built up over time and the compounding advantages they bring. Well, right now you are completely on your own. Right. And I feel like you could turn on Fox News any night of the week and, and, and hear this. It, it's just striking to me how this was this was the argument two seconds after the Civil War, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, the Civil War was fought and you really realized that there was an opportunity at the end of the Civil War to change people's minds somehow. But that didn't happen. And part of the reason it didn't happen was because Johnson was pushing back and bolstering the kind of racial attitudes that had allowed slavery to exist in the first place. And there were people, you know, people in Congress, people like Thaddeus Stevens or Charles Sumner, who said, look, you have to not just get rid of slavery, you have to get rid of the pernicious effects. But Johnson and people like Johnson, and Johnson had the power, basically saying, uh, no, slavery is over, so black people, you're on your own, you know, and if you can't make it, that's your problem. But if we give you any kind of rights, we're somehow imperiling uh, and punishing the white South and 
white people. It's kind of astonishing. And as you say, it persists to this day. The thing that interested me was the fact that there was an opportunity at this moment in history, after the war and during that period that Johnson was in the executive office, there was a period when the country had an opportunity and people were pushing to go in a very different direction, a direction that today seems not only relevant, but couldn't have possibly been happening in the 1860s. But it was. It it actually existed. And that's, in a sense, why Johnson was impeached. He was impeached partly, if not largely, for his racial attitudes. But you can't say that, and that's not impeachable. You know, um, people's point of view, their policies, their ideas about other people, those aren't impeachable offenses per se. But Johnson was putting that into legislation, and that really chilled people who felt the war had been fought, and now we have an opportunity not to squander the results of the war. And we're talking at a certain point, not just about radicals or progressives, but moderates and even some conservatives felt the same way. Before we get to impeachment itself, can you talk a bit about what that radically different direction was? What were the what were the competing ideas of where the country could go? And what was the path that, say, the Thaddeus Stevens of the world wanted to take? And what was the path that Andrew Johnson ultimately pushed the country in? Well, the path that Stevens and Charles Sumners and a host of other people, Wendell Phillips outside of the of the government, uh, women like Jane Swissholm, uh, the path that the country could have taken is in some sense very simple. It's equal justice for all. Simple. That all people are created equal. And what they wanted to do was actually make the Declaration of Independence the watchword of the country, to make justice available, an opportunity available for everyone who was in the country, whatever the conditions of their birth, uh, whatever the conditions of previous servitude, you name it. And they really believed in that. So what they wanted to do, first of all, is pass civil rights legislation. Johnson vetoed it. They overrode the veto. And then they realized we need more than legislation in Congress. We need an amendment. So they hammered together the 14th Amendment. That wasn't enough either, because you realize that the people who had been enslaved and who'd been deprived of human rights now should be able to vote. They should have a say in the representative government. So they believed in the government formed by all the people at all times. Well, all people except (laughs) women. And so what they wanted to do first was enfranchise black men. And they were able to do that through legislation so that there was an opportunity, you know, slow, hesitating. But the goal was very, very clear. The goal was equal justice under the law, that all men and all women, theoretically, are created equal. That's where they were going. Johnson pushed against it at every opportunity, taking pot shots, we'd call them, going to rallies. Um, he you know, felt he could take his positions to the people. He rallied against the 14th Amendment's ratification. He called for the execution of his perceived enemies. Now the traitors weren't Southerners. What traitors were were people like that is Stevens and Charles Sumner. So you can see the country is starting to be um, torn apart yet again. This is a place where, personality-wise, there are some resonances that when you're reading the book sound like they could be plucked out of the headlines. You write of Andrew Johnson that he was, quote, not a statesman. He was a man with a fear of losing ground, with a need to be recognized, with an obsession to be right. And when seeking revenge on enemies or perceived enemies, he had to humiliate, harass, and hound them. Heedless of consequences, he baited Congress and bullied men, believing his enemies were enemies of the people. There's a lot there that sounds very contemporary, shall we say. Eh, We shall say. Um, I tried to keep blinders on when I was writing the book. When I started the book, it was six years ago. It was the Obama administration. Nobody was thinking about impeachment. Maybe me, maybe my editor, um, and uh, maybe a handful of others. Um, But uh, And then I thought, well, if Hillary Clinton wins, she's going to be impeached. Um, That won't get very far, but we can see more hearings coming. But when I was writing this, I was 
was thinking about Johnson. Johnson had started as a stump speaker uh, and a demagogue. He was known as a demagogue in Tennessee. Um, his life was was devoted to politics. That's one difference from today. But he was he was stubborn, convinced of the righteousness of his views. He was uh, had a sense of persecution. He used a sense of victimization that's just shocking to listen to him talk to formerly enslaved people like uh, uh, Frederick Douglass and and talk as if he had been the one who'd been wounded by the country. So yeah, there are parallels with today. Um, and, you know, I don't know if you can draw any lessons from that, um, but there are certain kinds of people that for whatever reasons, an accident in the case of uh, Andrew Johnson, who come into the Oval Office and who are not the people that, you know, that you want there, basically, because they can't even listen. They can't compromise. One of the things Johnson was able to do that is not like the present day is he was able to unite people in, say, the Republican Party, conservatives, moderates, and progressives um, who were divided. He united people because they were all equally appalled uh, by his behavior, by his venting, by his ranting, by his stubbornness. So this, too, seems to me to be very relevant to our, our current situation. I think we'll bring it brings us nicely to the impeachment question itself. You mentioned earlier that Johnson, in some fundamental way, was impeached over his racial views, that it was the size of that rupture and the size of that disagreement that led to a Congress that was willing to look to impeach him. But here, too, it was not his racial views that got him impeached. It was a series of decisions he made around appointments and a series of other behaviors. So can you talk a bit about what were the actual offenses that led to Congress constructing an impeachment inquiry? Yeah. Well, you know, the impeachment inquiry, uh, in the case of Johnson, uh, predates the actual impeachment. And there were many people who pulled the trigger pretty fast on Johnson and his, and, and wanting to impeach him. And there were others in the Republican Party who were saying, not so fast. This may not be a good thing. Um, let's put it to the Judiciary Committee, um, where some of them really hope to bury it. And the investigation kind of uh, went along, lurched forward, and ju- judiciary voted against impeaching him, then they voted for impeaching him, then they voted in the House, and, and they voted against impeaching him. And I bring all that up partly to say impeachment is a complicated uh, process. It's a court of last resort. And one of the things that is difficult about impeachment is deciding what's an impeachable offense. That's something that's very relevant today. Do you need to actually break a law to be impeached? Or as Thaddeus Stevens and others said, step on a statute, you know, very clear violation of a federal or other kind of law, or, and that was the case of Clinton and his perjury, right? He broke the law. Or can you be impeached for other kinds of issues that Ham- Alexander Hamilton mapped out in the Federalist Papers? Maladministration was called abuse of the public trust, abuse of power. In those kinds of offenses, are a little harder to prove because they seem vague. Treason and bribery don't seem vague. High crimes and misdemeanors do, and it's not clear. Again, as I said, a narrow view says you have to break a law, and a larger view says abuse of power um, and the denial of the legitimacy of Congress or, you know, all kinds of things. Even underneath that, as I said, racial views, bigoted views. All right. In the case of Johnson, he hadn't broken a law when the Judiciary Committee began its investigations. And that's what was difficult for people to really think, do we want to remove a president or impeach a president on these questions that are murky and hard to decide or even nail down? So what happened was Johnson actually did violate a law. And I want to back up for a moment on that. The law was the Tenure of Office Act. It was passed by Congress specifically so that Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of of War, who was a thorn in Johnson's side, could not be fired 
by Johnson. So that the law stated anyone, any civil officer who is appointed with the advice and consent of the Senate can be fired only with the advice and consent of the Senate. That seemed to protect Stanton. The Congress wanted to protect him because they had also passed Reconstruction legislation, which enfranchised black men in the South. Then in order to protect them, there was terrible violence going on in the South. There were terrorist groups forming uh, under the guise of state militias. So in order to protect these formerly enslaved people, now citizens, and in order to protect them at the polls specifically and to protect white Republicans, what Congress did was pass the Tenure of Office Act. Okay, Johnson wants no part of Stanton. He's removing people in the military, and the military had been sent down to the South to protect these people. Johnson wanted to get rid of anyone who was protecting you know, people at the polls, and Stanton was protecting the military, so he needed to get rid of Stanton. So he did. <laughs> he fired Stanton. First, he suspended him within the, you know, under the jurisdiction of the law, but Stanton wouldn't leave his office. It gets to be almost like a comic opera. And so Johnson fires him. And then the House has no choice, it feels at this point, all investigations. He wouldn't leave his literal office space. <laughs> He will not leave his office. He says, I'm not leaving. You know, um, I'm not leaving unless the Senate says I have to leave. And the Senate, of course, backs him. I shouldn't say of course, but the Senate backs him. He doesn't have to leave. All right. Um, during the suspension. So Johnson fires him. Johnson fires him. And then, as I said, the House has no recourse except to impeach Johnson because he just really thumped his nose at Congress by saying, I don't respect your law. I don't think it's a good law. I don't think it's a constitutional law. I don't like your law. Basically, he's he's saying, I don't care about you. You're not legitimate anyway, because um, the former South, the former seceded states aren't all there. So there you have it. I mean, that's really a line in the sand that we would call today. And that was that. And they impeached Andrew Johnson. That was in February 1868. So that was the narrow view of impeachment. But one of the striking things about the impeachment articles they ultimately adopt is that while it's triggered by this more narrow dispute over the Tenure of Office Act, there's also impeachment articles in there about how Andrew Johnson speaks about Congress. Um, and, and I love the actual language that they said of him that he would make and deliver. These are in impeachment articles, I'm quoting, make and deliver with a loud voice certain intemperate, inflammatory and scandalous harangues and did therein utter loud threats and bitter menaces as well against Congress amid the cries, jeers and laughter of the multitudes. And then there's also this more catch-all impeachment article that comes from Thaddeus Stevens that ends up being in some ways the most potent. So it's it's a funny mixture where on the one hand, what triggers impeachment is very narrow. And on mm -hmm. the other hand, the impeachment articles ultimately adopted by the House are, are quite a bit broader. Well, some of them are broader. You're absolutely right. Because the earlier ones, there are 11 articles, really. And the, you know, it's really only the 9th, 10th, and 11th, you know, mainly the 10th and 11th that are of a broader nature. So in a sense, you could say the House wanted it both ways. The House wasn't sure, but, you know, the first articles really were all around the narrow view of the Tenure of Office Act. But but finally, you know, and people like Thaddeus Stevens, who mainly wrote the 11th article, you know, were, were furious because they felt this is too narrow. This is ridiculous. Now, the article, one of the articles that you mentioned would have to do with uh, Johnson's harangues and his menacing language. Um, it seemed, you know, seemed kind of a strange article to some people. And one of the people who was, uh, you know, going to the trial every day and taking notes and writing home to his family was Georges Clemenceau, later the premier of France. And um, he, you know, was a little perplexed by the article of, um, you know, bad language, basically. And then he said he sat down and read Johnson's speeches as they'd been reported in the papers. And he said, they really have a point. You know, there really is menacing language. And it was. I mean, he was calling for the execution of his enemies who were in Congress. It was unthinkable, unheard of. Now, the 11th 
article really did have to do with abuse of power and it really did have to do with obstruction of justice and it really did have to do with the denying the legitimacy of Congress because he said, Johnson had said, uh, Congress, uh, I don't have to do anything Congress wants uh, me to do because it doesn't represent the entire union. By that logic, the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery wasn't legitimate either. So you can really see what was going on here. Um, and there were, as I said, and, you know, people like Thaddeus Stevens who really wanted Johnson impeached for the broader uh, horrific crimes, in a sense, crimes almost, we'd say, against humanity. In the House, impeachment charges are brought um, and they, 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 they clearly needed vote, as you mentioned. In the Senate, ultimately, a large majority votes to convict Andrew Johnson, but not the two-thirds supermajority needed. Why does impeachment fail in the Senate? <laughs> There's a lot of reasons why it fails. You know, it fails by only one vote. And that vote was, if not outright, it, it wasn't bribed outright. There were sort of favors that were going back and forth. I don't know if you can call those bribery. I can't pin down how much money was going. There was an actual investigation of of the seven Republicans, particularly one of them who finally uh, voted to acquit Andrew Johnson. But Andrew Johnson, I mean, he really escaped removal by a tiny margin when you think about it. But there were issues. The one was, as I suggested, one is what we call today dark money. There was a lot of money. There were a lot of favors that were floating around. The second has to do with the so-called recusant Republicans, those who were kind of leery of removing uh, Johnson. And part of that reason was that if Johnson was removed, there was a man named Ben Wade, who is the Senate pro tempore, where he was next in line for the presidency. That was the succession during those days. We were very close in 1868 when these votes were taken. We were very close to a presidential election. You want to talk about another parallel. And many Republicans felt, or a few or enough of them felt, that if Ben Wade were actually taking over the presidency, you would have somebody much too radical. And that radical person and his positions might saddle the nominee for president that the Republicans wanted, and that was the popular war hero, Ulysses S. Grant, who was waiting in the wings. Grant, I should point out, just hated Johnson by this time and wanted him impeached, but he was keeping his cards, as he always did, close to his chest. So there was the question of the presidential election. There was a question of dark money that was going back and forth. And, of course, Johnson's own party that didn't really like him at all um, basically just felt it was better to keep him in office uh, than get, as I said, a Ben Wade in the presidency. How did partisanship play out in that era? And to what degree was the way the parties reacted similar or different to the way we see them reacting in this era of polarization? Yeah, what's interesting about partisanship in that era is we, you know, to a certain extent, it's hard to put together because we don't have polls. And we, we only have newspapers or, you know, one of their sources is newspapers, and they were all enormously partisan. But as I said, Andrew Johnson had a gift, and one of his gifts, um, or this particular gift, was he could unite people who would otherwise be against him. So the partisanship, you know, that had, in some sense, you could say, caused the Civil War was still there underneath the surface. But the opportunity was there to, um, as we say today, heal the country. Johnson was not a healer. And no one really wanted Johnson to stay in office beyond the 1868 election. But it would be wrong to say that there was no partisanship. There was. There had been a war fought, after all. And many in the South, um, particularly, uh, thought Johnson was, you know, just abiding by the Constitution as they knew and loved it, which, of course, had permitted the institution of slavery. So in that particular sense, Johnson did have a constituency. You know, he did. As someone once asked me, did Johnson have a base? Of course he had a base. What was the consequence of failure? And let me let me start that question in terms of the impeachment power. If Johnson had been impeached, do you think the impeachment power, having been used re reasonably early in the country's history to remove a president, would be more 
oft used after that or seen differently today? It may be seen differently today, but if Johnson, I mean, Johnson was impeached. There's no getting around right, it. I'm sorry. You know, I, should, interest- I should keep saying convicted. I, I keep using, I keep falling into the um, colloquial. Yeah, no, no, no. We all get that confused. You know, impeachment is impeachment. It's, it's, it's really a stain. Johnson was impeached when Clinton was impeached. Nixon was pushed out of office with the threat of impeachment, which is a very different kind of thing. But Johnson was not removed from office. Had he been removed from office, if the whole process, impeachment and removal, been successful, I do not think it would have become a a kind of reflexive gesture that one party would use against another party when they didn't like a sitting president. I really don't think so, because you have to remember the context in which that impeachment, Johnson's impeachment, occurred. And that context was right after after a brutal slaughter, a massacre known as the Civil War, and the brutal slaughter and massacres that were going on in the country, in cities like Memphis and New Orleans and in the countryside. So it was an enormously fraught and violent time where where the country hadn't been put back together. And then I think the impeachment would be understood as an opportunity to turn, as I said earlier, the country in a very, very different direction. Whether that direction would have maintained itself, or whether there were people of good and ill will who would have continued to fight, I have no idea, really. Um, I'd like to think that it would have been able to, you know, represent different kinds of values um, than than what Johnson did. Um, but I don't think it would, I don't think we would see one impeachment after another because, as I said, nobody wanted to do it. Do you think that if Johnson had been convicted, and I know you gestured to this a little bit in, in your answer here, do you think that the history of equality, racial equality in this country would be different? Or given that um, Ulysses S. Grant did come in shortly thereafter, that the ultimate consequence of having Johnson hold the office for a little bit longer was not that dramatic in terms of the the long-term course of legislation in this country? Well, I, you know, I think both are true. I mean, I think that if Johnson had been impeached, I think absolutely there would have been a sense of uh, the possibility of having a country based on equality, um, because I think that that would have been an impeachment and the causes for impeachment uh, would be well known. I mean, that's what really what I want to emphasize in a sense, that if Johnson had been impeached, if if the impeachment had been successful, and if the success had been understood as a means to make not just the country whole again, but the country free and fair and equal, then I think history would have been written in the 70s, 80s, 90s, turn of the century, up until perhaps the 1950s in a very different way. And that way would have included a quest for racial equality, if not the maintenance of racial equality, rather than just papering it over. You know, and I I firmly believe that many of us, certainly I began the book because I didn't know anything about this. And I was wondering why I didn't know anything about this impeachment. And I think one of the reasons had to do was its cause had been suppressed and the cause was a fight for racial equality. What I had been told and taught was the Johnson impeachment was a mistake. And as, as, you know, recently as a year or two ago, I saw in the New York Times book review someone referring to the Johnson impeachment as a kind of mistake, as preposterous, shouldn't have happened. And I think, wait just a minute, what are the issues here? Brenda Wineapple, thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure. I want to take a moment here at the end of the show to talk about an argument that has been percolating. And I know, I know, I know, I know. None of these arguments are real. None of them are on the level. But but I do want to just take a moment on this one. I I, I can't not. There's a, a old Jewish joke about the definition of chutzpah, which is it is a young man who kills his parents and then pleads before the court for mercy because he's now an orphan. And I keep thinking of that joke, watching the Republican argument 
that there just have not been enough witnesses. We don't have enough information. And as such, no impeachment can go forward. Because, of course, Donald Trump is the reason we don't have more witnesses and don't have more information. If he was not blocking all of the key players from testifying, or at least most of the key players from testifying, we have had a lot of firsthand witnesses at this point. But if he was not blocking a lot of the witnesses people want to hear from from testifying, we would know more. And so for the Republicans to come out and say, well, this is a, a, this is a sham. He's being railroaded when they are the ones permitting him to keep the witnesses from testifying is appalling. The thing that would happen here, the thing that would happen if Republicans agreed with this argument they are making, if they believe this argument, is they would turn to Donald Trump and say, it is important to us that we get to the bottom of this. It is important to us that we know what happened here. And so if you don't let these people testify, we will consider that obstruction of justice and we will join the Democrats to impeach you. So let them testify so we could find out their call was perfect and you did nothing wrong. But they are not saying that. Donald Trump is keeping the Republicans from testifying. They are not testifying. And then the congressional Republicans are saying because these people have not testified, this process is a sham and it cannot be allowed to go forward. And it's a coup and it's trying to overturn the will of the people. It is chutzpah on an amazing scale, as everything here has been. But also from a constitutional perspective, it is Republicans, one, completely abandoning their role and institutional prerogative to provide oversight, uh, which just as a continuing theme of this show about how the American political system, if it ever had it, is losing its capacity to have accountability, uh, particularly in periods of unified government, but even to some degree in periods of divided government. But then the other piece of it is that this argument is functionally a version of nullification. I mean, if it is simply the case that the president can say that I'm going to call executive privilege and not allow any of my key people to testify, and that having said that, then his party can say, well, we don't have the information to go forward with any kind of impeachment trial. What we are saying is that by claiming executive privilege, the president can nullify the impeachment power. He can nullify Congress's ability to conduct proper and effective and legitimate oversight. That is the argument Republicans are making. And they would, I am sure, still walk out of the congressional chamber and if asked, say, yes, I am a constitutional conservative. That is what I do here. That is why I came to Washington. But that is not what they are at this point. They've become deeply anti-constitutional conservatives. That is this week's Impeachment Explained. Thank you for joining us. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, but you're not a listener of my other podcast, Yes, Recline Show, I think you'll like what we're doing there. Obviously, we're not as deep into impeachment, but we've got the climate change series starting back up. We're doing some, I think, interesting stuff around ethical philosophy right now. Some of the issues that American politics needs to deal with and are being obscured by what President Trump forces us to deal with. We're trying to create some space to talk about there. So I think you'll enjoy it. Ezra Klein shows available wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, as always, I want to thank Rajay Karma for researching, Jeffrey Geld for producing, John Notches for doing the awesome theme music, and Liz Nelson for being our wonderful EP. Impeachment Explained is a Vox Media Podcast Network production. Mm-hmm.